Hey, Todd, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, so I want to have you on the show because um, I follow media businesses very closely and uh, sort of a nerd in terms of like following media businesses more than normal people. Uh, and you're also a podcaster. So I, um, I always like talking to fellow podcasters because there's always a unique vantage point in terms of how many people you talk to. And, you all, and most of the podcasts, actually the hosts get to accumulate different points of view and more interesting points of views than uh, you know the guests. So it's always interesting to talk to podcast hosts as well. Uh, but I think to start the conversation, can you talk a little bit about you know your early career you know before starting Equire and uh, sort of how did you end up uh, starting Equire? You bet. I've been a journalist since I was 17 years old at my high school newspaper and really have never stopped through internships and community newspapers and daily newspaper jobs and eventually ended up covering technology and Microsoft for a paper that was called the Seattle Post Intelligence or the PI, which was one of two daily papers in Seattle. You can hear the noise. I'm right on the Lake Washington ship canal here in, in Seattle. So you'll hear the tourist planes going overhead. Um, and Right in the 2007-2008 timeframe, my colleague John Cook and I, who were business and tech reporters at the PI, realized that the parent company of the newspaper, Hearst, seemed to be managing the paper in a way that we didn't think was going to result in its long-term growth and started looking at different options and ended up leaving and tried it initially at another large company, American City Business Journals and started a site there initially and realized again that we just basically traded our corporate overlords in New York for the ones in Charlotte and <laughs> realized, hey, this is uh, this is something we just need to do on our own. And so we were fortunate to find a, a very experienced investor, angel investor, Jonathan Spasado, who came on as chairman and our sole investor financially uh, to this date and um, started GeekWire in uh, 2011. So it's been a little bit over 10 years since we've been doing it and built up the team still pretty small. We're just at about 12 or 13 people, depending on how you count full and part-time folks. And our fundamental premise with GeekWire from the very beginning was that Seattle and the Pacific Northwest deserve a national technology news site. And we did that phrasing in part because we didn't want to make it parochial and local. We wanted to make sure that it served the local audience, but at the same time attracted and also served and provided value to national readers. And the underlying premise is that what happens here matters everywhere. You've got Microsoft and Amazon, startups, Valve, um, T-Mobile. I mean, I could sit here, I could spend the whole hour with you <laughs> listing off the companies that are based in the Seattle region or have significant operations here, especially since you've got all these Silicon Valley giants coming up over the last decade and establishing hubs here. It's just such a important tech hub and historically has not been as well served or at least as significantly served by tech news publications, especially when you compare it to a market like Silicon Valley. So that's our premise and that's what we do. And, and um, we try to apply as much as we can the principles of traditional community building and shoe leather journalism, really trying to dig up as much as we can uh, 
to that whole mission. Did you guys have like uh, a reference point in terms of what kind of business you were building at that time? Um... To some extent, a couple different reference points. John and I both worked for small town newspapers growing up. I grew up in a tiny community about 100 miles north of Sacramento in Northern California and did a lot of internships and early work at the small papers in my region. John's mom, uh, who's since passed away, was a reporter for the Akron Beacon Journal in Wayne County, Ohio. And John would listen to his mom making calls at the kitchen table on the latest news and the government news. And so that was one reference point, this whole notion of news bringing a community together and giving people a common understanding of facts, which is so lacking in many respects across our society today. But then separately, of course, we looked at, uh, at the time, I think, I'm trying to remember where Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg were. I think they might've been doing all things D or Recode. I, I can't, you know, they went through multiple iterations as well. Of course, TechCrunch was an interesting case study to look at. Um, and just, and since then, of course, there's been all sorts of interesting business models, subscription models and, and um, the information is a really interesting business that's come out uh, in our niche and um, at least nationally. And so there's some, some interesting reference points and I think that'll give you sort of a, a general sense for the frame of reference. I, th I think you do bit incorporate pretty much all of those different business models, right? I think you have, uh, I mean, uh, Recode, I think Carol went on to do Recode, which which is big into events. Uh, I think you have in you know Seattle events uh, that you do, um, and yep. I think so. I think that's a. I think that brings up a broader question. Like as you mentioned, um, the small town newspapers or media businesses, even in TV uh, networks that used to be thriving right at some point, uh, are no longer are. When you see the whole spectrum, right, everything is owned by a national company and the attention is skewed towards, you know, um, a few assets, uh, you know, which are national and international. Uh, how do you see that whole, you know, uh, local versus national uh, affecting and how do you see that evolving? It's interesting. I look at it in two different ways. One is more on the business press and the business trade press. And there, I think another reference point, frankly, that we used was our experience at the Seattle Business Journal, the Puget Sound Business Journal and American City Business Journals, who built a substantial events business. You might think it, in some ways we look at it sometimes and we think it's too substantial, like they've just got too much going on, it's hard to keep up with. Um, but so you've got that whole frame of reference, but then you have the local community news and I still pay a lot of attention and actually do a little bit of volunteering in my hometown in my spare time to help. There has been at the local level in community news, such a transformation of the fundamental economic drivers of newspaper revenue back in the day, Craigslist and classified ads. Um, you've had Amazon come in and really transform Main Street retail. Whereas in the past, you might have a hardware store in a small town that was a big advertiser in the local paper. Many people are 
able to get one day delivery, even in small rural communities now from Amazon and in just so many ways. And then the other thing is Facebook really from an editorial perspective ends up serving so much of that basic community news. Fourth of July, just this week in the US, so many people were getting their, their community information from Facebook who would have been getting it from newspapers and new sites in the past. So technology has just completely upended how local publishers look at their business. And we've got so many of them now looking at going nonprofit because of that. The business trade press is very different in a lot of ways. And we're fortunate in that the drivers of the sponsors and advertisers and readers are different. They're motivated by business goals in some respects and personal career goals and marketing objectives. And I think as journalists, we didn't necessarily think of those types of readers when we went to J school, the journalism school, but it's clearly a much more viable economic model. And we like to think about how those different customer personas can use GeekWire on the business side. People use it for lead gen and people look at our lists and our events. They're going there to find new recruits, new engineering recruits, to find a new job, to make a connection that can lead to a big business deal for a marketing person. So in that respect, business and trade press, I think, have a more interesting landscape financially and economically to play on right now. I, I think uh, you mentioned Facebook. I think there was a point in time when Facebook was dominating and people were wondering where the business model was going. And uh, and there was a phase where like a lot of, you know, VC-backed media firms came into the picture, like the BuzzFeeds and the Vice and uh, recently, I mean, Axios, uh, you know, came recently, like, and then we thought, okay, even the information, right? So we've, I think the BuzzFeeds of the world sort of said, okay, this is the new model where we'll use the Facebooks of the world, you know, to create content and distribute content. Uh, and then we have, you know, information, which is saying like, we are purely exclusive tech and purely subscription. And this is only for the highly intentional audience. Um, where, where is the sweet spot? Because we have seen uh, BuzzFeed going public and probably, uh, you know, many will say this is not ideal for a media company to go public. I think the business model has changed so much and there are not enough margins and growth uh, for a BuzzFeed-like business to be a public company. Like, what do you think about just that aspect of can a media company be as large as it used to be, like purely based on the news or focusing on tech? Uh, and what do you think are the right business model going models going forward? Because you see certain new media companies coming up at the same time, even though we have this negative sort of story for BuzzFeed. Uh, we also see that, you know, Axios is starting news divisions and, you know, smaller towns. They're talking of expanding. Um, I, I forgot uh, the two brothers who used to work, uh, uh, one in Bloomberg and someone else starting a new uh, media firm, raising VC capital for that. So uh, I, I guess it's a two-part question. Like, what, what, Where is the business model you see going uh, either in tech or news publishing? Uh, and what do you think of like the bus feeder companies uh, and where they are going? Yes, that, those are huge questions. Um, in terms of the business model, 
I like to think about it in a more abstract way. And then I think that different publishers can find different ways of providing value that also generate revenue for them. And GeekWire's own business model has not evolved necessarily, but it's shifted and the proportions of what we do have changed depending on the circumstances in the economy and the pandemic and its impact on events. But starting with the abstract, our goal is to go out and find out things that people don't know that they need to know and present it to them in a way that is understandable and consumable and gives meaning and value. And then that attracts this group of readers, ideally, and I'm speaking in the ideal, this is a, a goal that we strive for and don't always achieve. And when you do that, when you bring this audience together, there's all sorts of interesting things that you can do. Events, memberships, you can even perhaps even do a print publication that aggregates your daily or hourly content into a quarterly publication, for example, and provide that as a membership benefit. There's just all sorts of interesting things you can do. One thing that GeekWire on the business side, which I'm not as directly involved in operationally, uh, even as a co-founder, my main focus is on the editorial side, but I know that on the business side, we have started doing custom content. So our GeekWire Studios division will go out and essentially attend an event, go to an event and produce content for the sponsor or the organizer of the event. Again, independent of our editorial operations. So to me, it's just that kind of that abstract raw material though is a really strong sense of journalistic values. I think it, it has to start there and then you can do all sorts of interesting things around that. And it's a chance for different publishers to get creative once you have that audience and you're attracting those sponsors and you've got the attend event attendees, you can basically do all sorts of interesting things and be creative and brainstorm. I think that answers the BuzzFeed question too. We've seen so many publishers go out and raise big rounds. When I say publishers, I mean these startup companies, of course, BuzzFeed isn't a startup anymore, but new media ventures go out and raise these big rounds, hire tons and tons of people. And you see it repeated over and over and over again. And it may work, who knows? But in my observations and in my experience, in many ways, they're chasing an exit that is more about the financial exit for them than it is than it is for proving a viable business model. And that to me does not seem like, a, does not seem like an approach that will result in success more times than failure. I, I think that for us, I can only speak for us in the end. And for us, both John and I have resisted the urge to try and go big in part because Maybe it's a failing on our part in terms of delegation and the ability to transfer knowledge and convey experience. And we've struggled with that candidly um, and to keep the quality up as we've gotten a little bit bigger. And for us, the answer has just been, hey, focus on what we know, make sure that we're building it in a sustainable way and keep it going. And um, to the credit of John and the business team, John, John is effectively in the publisher role. 
and um, comes out of a journalism background, but is effectively at the, in the publisher role, overseeing the business side and, and uh, editorial vision uh, to some extent, but not nitty gritty editorial because that would create conflicts. Um, it, it's really this notion of making sure that we're serving the audience that that we know we can serve and and doing the best we can with that it's, it's, it's a little more of a boutique business it, unfortunately you know it's not necessarily a venture-backed business yeah i feel like the physics of the outcome actually i i think in last couple of years and this is true for even tech ideas i feel is that we've lost and especially this happens with more younger people who come into the business uh, is that they forget to do the research about physics of different businesses. Like the certain amount of physics ingrained in all these businesses, like media businesses can get non-linearity, but they have to be sort of an aggregator like Facebook, like Facebook or Twitter. They're essentially, you know, they're user generated, they're acting as a platform. So the non-linearity of outcome comes from there, um, right? But if you're, you know, fact-checking and if you're a fact-based, uh, you know, editorial content and, you're making sure that you're not just regurgitating other articles, you know, published somewhere else. You are, you know, scaling linearly. You're scaling. You have to have humans, you know, to scale that operation. And quality doesn't come, uh, you know, by putting an algorithm or by, uh, you know, if, if you scale to suddenly your 10x your team, your quality doesn't 10x. Uh, so I think a certain there's a certain physics to different businesses that I think got lost even in terms of like ideas when people pitch like service-based businesses or certain really you know have been sort of good good to own business as individuals uh as you know a tech business that often you know sort of fails but i i feel like both investors and founders get caught in that um I think maybe it is FOMO, maybe it is for, you know, lots of different reasons. And part of it is because of the risk-taking nature of venture itself. Like you have to bet on new things and believe that impossible things can be possible. Like that, that side, that is the investor side of things, but the founder side of things is I feel like every new idea these days, founders or like young people come to encounter they feel that it's the first time that idea has been thought of. Like I think I see this new idea bias a lot, like thinking that this is the first time this new idea has been, you know, I, I'm, I figured out something really new and this is like the first time it's ever been attempted. I think that research partly has been missing, uh, especially in the last two years, we've seen this more. Um, but uh, I, I want to ask you about the whole new category of media, sort of like media businesses, but now being created by probably even smaller teams than require right like you know a morning brew or the athletic or you know these sort of businesses i wonder how do you guys see internally about these businesses and um you know they are successful partly because of maybe substack and other stuff but i don't really give to be honest substack that much credit because the rss way of delivering emails was you know like that platform existed i know like Substack made it better, but I could name like Review or Beehive are actually better in terms of products. So I, I feel like that is not a technical uh, thing. It's mostly like driven by internet allowing us to do things uh, because the Substack as a product, I feel it is not a big innovation, but the fact that three people can create, you know, a $10 million business using newsletter 
uh, like that is an interesting thing that's happened that's been happening for the last five six years uh, i'm curious to know your thoughts on how do you look at this whole newsletter as a business definitely we pay extremely close attention to what different newsletters are doing especially and when there was the big run of new substack newsletters we paid a lot of attention to not only the business model but frankly the style of newsletter that they were putting out and to your point i think ultimately it comes down to the authority that the individual substacker the individual email newsletter publisher brings to that topic and the value they're conveying more so than even the tech platform or the under underlying economics that Substack or any of the others could provide, we pay a lot of attention to Axios. And in fact, Axios internally at GeekWire, maybe I'm the only one who does this, but we end up using Axios as a verb. Hey, you know, you should Axios that one. And that's my shorthand for you should pull together different threads good ideas, important stories that you can link to, and the own context that you can bring from your own beat, even if you got beat on a story, and put it out in a way that's extremely digestible. I think that is something that Axios has really brought. We, we follow Ina Freed, um, who is a longtime tech reporter for a variety of different publications who publishes the Axios tech login. And um, it's it's a strong newsletter and Ina breaks news. And I think it exemplifies all the principles that we're, we're talking about here. So uh, slightly shifting gears, um, I think I've, I've seen, I think one of your tweets about, you know, startup funding down, I think 20, 25% this time, yeah. you know, in Pacific Northwest uh, and Seattle area. And I think that's broadly true globally as well probably more in terms of the number um but what do you see like happening right now in terms of like the macro view of startups and venture capital in general yeah and before i answer that i i do want to point out because that the way we came up with those numbers exemplifies what we're trying to do journalistically as well so a while back two three years ago we realized hey we're reporting on a pretty comprehensive set of startup deals. You know, we monitor Form D filings with the SEC. Of course, we get press releases from companies, but there are also times when we're digging things up that companies don't want out there. Um, and so we started this funding list, uh, geekwire.com slash fundings, where we just go in, if we write about a funding in the Pacific Northwest in our coverage area, we we log it and we just keep it up. And so last week we realized, oh wait, it's the end of the second quarter. What, what does this look like? And it's genuinely a question of ours. Hey, what's going on in the funding landscape? And of course, CB Insights and PitchBook and the National Venture Capital Association all come out with their reports, but you have to wait a few weeks. And that's one nice thing as a small, nimble startup. I just, I spent about an hour putting together the spreadsheet for my own use and pulled a story out of it last week. So. To answer your question, what we're seeing in the numbers in the Pacific Northwest is a smaller number of deals. And in the second quarter, at least, there were a few outsized deals among those smaller number of deals. A $400 million deal for a company whose name is escaping me at the moment. Um, quite a few hardware and biotech deals and kind of run of the mill 
not run of the mill, but you know what I mean? The, the prototypical e-commerce infrastructure cloud company that you might've seen reaching unicorn status at this point last year with a big series C funding at more than a billion in valuation. Those kinds of deals seem to have gone away. It seems like investors have gotten a little bit more choosy and not boutique with their, their decision-making, but just a little bit uh, more creative and opportunistic. And there isn't the, oh yeah, this has to be funded. We need to get this uh, new CRM company to the next level because these people are going to eventually be public. There's that. There's not that just sort of normal, uh, traditional path from B to C to D in public. It, it seems like it, that part of the market has gotten clogged. In other words, like the growth stage, CDC, CDSD, yeah. primarily driven by Tiger Global, Katu, and all the crossover yes. funds basically got in to zero, essentially. Uh, From what we've seen, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's probably true uh, across, I think of even the CB Insights report and some other reports also yeah. show the same. Uh, and probably that's because of uh, what happened in their public market funds, you know, directly affecting what they're doing in private markets, at least for a while now. Um, talking about, I mean, uh, startups, uh, I know you covered a lot about, you know, Amazon and Microsoft uh, uh, in your career. So I, I wanted to ask you um, about Amazon uh, primarily. Um, and I think, uh, you know, in one of the podcasts you're talking about here, yeah, I think, the fourth dreamy business, you know, that Amazon is uh, wants to create, you know, the first three being Prime, uh, Marketplace being the second and AWS uh, being the third. And I'm curious, like what, at this point, what do you think um, uh, the fourth dreamy business Amazon might get to? Yeah, and there's a lot of discussion about this and it's, I need to go back and look at Jeff Bezos's specific definition, but, um, I know that a lot of people talk about the advertising business as one potential. And of yeah. course they're making billions. They just started breaking that out in their results. And I don't have those numbers in front of me, but it's certainly getting to the size that it could be a dreamy business. But one of the characteristics that Bezos set was customers love it. Customers love it. And I look at the advertising business and I go, the third party sellers who feel like that's essentially the extra tax that they have to pay to even be relevant in search results. I don't think they love that. And end users, customers who are ordering those products may, may be helping their search results if the, or their search for products if those ad results are better than they would have gotten from an organic result. But are, do they really love it? I don't know. And I think that's a really interesting characteristic of that term, also, dream of business. It could be that it's part of marketplace business. Yes, exactly. It doesn't feel so much like it's it's its own business as it is it's an adjunct of one of the existing dreamy businesses. I totally agree with you on that. Um, but I think that characteristic of customers love it is actually very important because if you look at AWS and you look at Marketplace um, and uh, you know you look at the what was what was the third one? I just Prime. slipped my mind. Prime, of course, Prime. Yeah, customers love that. Maybe not so much marketplace consciously, but I think they do love the selection. Prime video perhaps, but again, then I think you can look at that and say, well, that's just an adjunct to Prime as well. And, and do customers really love it? A lot of the stuff on there seems like table stakes compared to Netflix. I mean, 
sure, there's good shows on there, but there's good shows on Netflix. There's good shows on Hulu, you know. Um, so I, I don't know. That's the that's the long answer to to the question of saying. I think that is one of the biggest challenges that Andy Jassy has, and he's been in the CEO role now for just about a year, exactly a year, actually. And I think I think there's a real question. Oh, actually, no. Now it's all coming back to me. I think there's a potential, at least, for Amazon to build the fourth dreamy business out of shipping. Shipping and logistics beyond shipping for Amazon's own customers and products, becoming a legitimate rival to UPS and FedEx. And the thing about Amazon is, I think, like a lot of us, I was an early customer, especially because I'm in the Seattle region and they were on my radar. and there's this characteristic, and it gets back to this notion of loving it as a customer. There's this characteristic of magic. When Amazon does what Amazon does well, it can feel like magic. And if they can bring that approach to something like shipping and logistics and truly solving pain points, not just doing me too kind of stuff, which I know they wouldn't do if they went into that business. Um, and You've seen this start to come together with this program that they launched earlier this year called Buy With Prime, where if it's a product on a third-party website, they will still fulfill it as if it were a Prime product. And so that to me, given all the infrastructure they built out and everything that they know about logistics and shipping from their own operations, I think that has the biggest potential. I actually don't, I mean, it's hard for me to uh, think that that is going to be the fourth uh, business because it's so, I think the one thing it lacks is strong returns because I think the four character spaces talks about is, uh, you know, I think one of them is strong returns. I think what it lacks is strong returns because they're already like, let's say internally Amazon balance sheet, if you look, um, let's say how much they're spending on the logistic and you separate our marketplace and logistics are separate entities and cost it to logistics as you can come up with an estimate that they're already making some billions of revenue and they're mostly net negative and it only makes sense in this idea that there's a huge marketplace and prime and all these things built around it that this particular thing makes sense so i actually uh, it's it's hard for me to like get into that vision whether it will be you know who knows it can be probably but it, it's hard to see for me that it will be a strong returns business. Um, but uh, I'm curious what you think about Alexa, because uh, I'll give you my perspective because I feel like Alexa, like it was a false customer signal delight. I think uh, Amazon received with Alexa products um, because one of the strongest trends I've seen with Alexa products is no one uses it after six months probably. I think the churn is super high uh, I think 80 to 90% customers who buy Alexa devices are not using it. And this is like my observation of you know, 30 people I go to around me. Uh, no one uses their Alexa. Um, and the one that uses sticks to it because they have like specific, very defined use case that they've defined and they are using it for that purpose. And that could be like an alarm or uh, they've, they've, they've figured out one, one or two specific things. And initially we got a wrong signal that everyone will use for that super customer is using. 
And I feel like Alexa is one area where we wrongly estimated as, as a success. I'm curious what you think about it. That is interesting. I, I, I really appreciate your perspective. And by the way, I, I just to go back real fast, I appreciate you pushing back on the shipping too. I, that kind of skepticism is important. And, and I think it shows just how tough those criteria are to meet, but, um, on Alexa, you can tell, well, I got to turn my Alexa off. She just, uh, I, I hear you. I, I, I think I might fall in that latter category of customers. So just in terms of, um, I'm a bit of an outlier because since I'm covering the company, much as I use windows, I try to use Alexa in the same way. So I know what's new and what's not. And, um, I think the use cases are not as great at this stage in the evolution of Alexa as Amazon might've hoped, or at least not as valuable. Um, a lot of the stuff seems like novelties and I'll tell you, I, the place where they get me on Alexa at this point is stuff like the, the high-end speakers, uh, the echo studio, my wife has one in the basement and like that kind of thing I really love. But then again, high-end speakers are high-end speakers. There's lots of them out there. And it is to be said that Amazon is offering anything unique there. They would argue maybe yes, incrementally in terms of the, the spatial audio or whatever it is. I, I, I hear you. Here's my question on that. Is Google Assistant different in that regard? Uh, I think the difference is Google is better in terms of what they do with their Google voice. It has always been better, like whether we do it on mobile or um, you know, their Google Assistant is way better because the customer 360 degree experience, they can do many more things than Alexa usually can do. Uh, but having said that, there, there's a false signal of product market fit in Alexa because theoretically you, you take any product that is, uh, you know, you know, it's fun, it's easy to use and push it at the top of Amazon's discount funnel, uh, you can get $100 million sales. I think that happened with Alexa because they were giving six pack free Alexa for, you know, for really cheap amounts. It was the Thanksgiving gift for like a couple of years. Uh, and that can always like, you know, if you use your strengths too much, you can like miss the real customer signal. I felt like that happened uh, with um, uh, with Alexa because if you you can technically push a particular new product in all your channels, and if it is a low cost hanging fruit and it serves a particular you know a delight factor for a couple of days, that's usually the classic gift. Uh, product that you want because like these gifts with the less than $20 gifts are usually delightful first for first five days and then oh you realize that uh, these are not actually sustainable use products they're just you know that I have to give some gifts so this is a good gift to give but they'll not use it so I feel like Alexa got especially the initial smaller devices got that false product market fit um, and it's it's almost like the double-edged sword of being an Amazon like you can get this false product market fit because you are actually, you know, you have this incredible website where 100 million people are hitting. And if you put a product at the top of the page and combine it with discounts and make it seem that you're getting something $100 worth for you know $25, then a lot of people will buy it and try it. But I think the sustainability and retention factor depends on how useful it is. And only over time can you tell it's actually useful or not. 
um, but they don't give out explicit stats, so we don't know. This is just my gut theory that it's not useful enough. When you say Google Assistant is better, are you referring to the value through the breadth of applications that it has or to the underlying technology and speech recognition or both? I, I, I'm just talking as a pure customer that it has many more applications, but intuitively as an engineer, I can tell Google has always been better than anyone else in terms I of their products. Uh, I can't put a number of, you know, how much error percentage or like how good their AI model is, but intuitively, you know, that Google is definitely better. And if you ask any developer and like pick them, hey, who is better in terms of AI, like I'm pretty sure it's, it's Google even now. Yeah, I'm a Pixel 6 user and just the, the integrations that they do, even with something like a voice recorder, just the smart ways that they do the transcriptions and upload them to a browser that you can access through your Google account. I'm always impressed with the way that Google implements these things. Yeah, I think Google's ability to execute certain things is like 10x better than some other companies, but they're also bad at like figuring out certain things. Like we've seen the number of chat applications that came out of Google. Uh, they had the first product in my view, the first product they got is the right one. G talk. It was called back, you know, 10 years back, they had the right product. They had to just copy it on mobile and they would have been done. <laughs> I think they're coming a full circle 10 years back to that, uh, interface again. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I hear you that the, the, I still refer to meets and hang out and get corrected. <laughs> so it's, yeah, we're, we're, a, we're one of those, um, G suite original free plan customers that are making the upgrade to a paid plan after uh, 11 years <laughs> of uh, free lunch. And, uh, it's worth it though. It's not that bad, um, in terms of the cost at this point. And it's, uh, for a shop our size, implementing something like Exchange and Active Directory would just be complete overkill. Yeah. I'm sure your colleagues at Microsoft and Office 365 and Microsoft 365 would be arguing with me, but that's okay. <laughs> I, I feel you there. Uh, I just want to shift gears a little bit and talk about from big tech to big media. Like, uh, what do you think where streaming is going right now? Because we've seen like Netflix drop. Uh, I think CNN Press was shut down within a month, uh, and then Quibi got uh, got into this unusual place of being a pandemic company and got shut down very quickly. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the whole streaming business in general. Yes, with the caveat, this is a little bit out of my sweet spot. Uh, it's not something I cover regularly, although I do cover a little bit of Netflix uh, at times because of the competition with Amazon Prime. I, I think that the way the economy is going right now, speaking for myself, one of the coolest applications I've been using recently is, is a Microsoft Excel plugin made by a local startup called Tiller that allows you to track your finances and really get a handle on a number of different things, including re recurring expenses. And there were a few times after I tried it and I covered them, I, I paid for the service, but I also, I covered them as well. And as I was trying it out, um, I, I just saw, oh my God, I signed up for Paramount Plus when, when I still have that and are we watching, you know, I just think that in this economic environment, there has to be some kind of pullback there. And obviously you're already seeing it in many ways. 
you know, in terms of what that means for startup opportunities and and whether there's new business models to be had, I don't know. I, I wonder if it might result in some form of consolidation at the streaming service level, if there's an opportunity for that, that would then give people bigger catalogs. Maybe Amazon will end up acquiring uh, some of these smaller services and wrapping them into Prime, and that'll have the effect of reducing the number of uh, monthly streaming bills. But uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely, there's definitely a lot of belt tightening going on all around us right now, and we see it in a variety of different ways, and I think that's one. Uh, do you see any like specific uh, trends uh, with what is happening with Netflix itself? Like, is there going to be more spending or less spending in terms of, because I think Netflix for long dictated what other media companies operated. Like they said the story of what is going to happen, right? And I think what changed was that now, okay, everyone is playing with the same rules because for a while there in the middle, Netflix was playing with their own rule of, hey, we are not going to be profitable, we are focusing on growth, sort of what Amazon did for 20 plus years, right? Because they dictated that story of, hey, we're not gonna make profits because we are growing and we wanna do more things. Uh, and, you know, they went on to do new projects, which, you know, became wildly successful like AWS, right? So I think Netflix got to dictate Wall Street, like, this is our story, we are not gonna, um, or we are going to do this, we're going to spend this much and that sort of put pressure in Disney's of the world and the HBO's of the world. And they had to play this game of like, we have to get into streaming, we have to spend 10 plus billion dollars on creating new content, even though they're creating content all the time. Um, and I feel like that story has shifted now. Uh, I feel like now, can you create quality content? Can you create quality consistently like a HBO Max or you know, HBO traditionally did with the limited budgets having limited compared to you know what Netflix was spending. I think the story has shifted from Netflix hands to everyone's hands. Like we are now going to judge you as a traditional media company rather than a growing tech star. I think that's what uh, changed. Yeah, I'll tell you what concerns me in all of this is that I worry that the source of influence in general in media consumption is shifting from the Netflixes of the world mm. where people are willing to pay a premium to get good content to the TikToks of the world where people are selling their data effectively and exposing themselves to ads and all sorts of random messages from all corners of the world in the internet. And I, it bothers me both economically, but it also bothers me in terms of attention span and overall awareness of what's happening in the world. And, yeah. and I, that, that to me is the trend where I just go, ah, and you know, I have to stop myself. My big thing lately is I re reached a point with the evening doom scrolling where I have just, my big discipline moment for myself this year has been leaving my phone in, in my office at home at night and I've really, really tried to double down on reading books and, and it just makes me feel more stable as a person. And, and, um, in a variety of ways, I feel like if there's some way to align the economics with longer attention spans, I wonder if there's a, if there's something there 
because it feels I, like it's going in the opposite direction now. I, I completely agree with you, like in terms of like attention span, and that's why that's why if you even the newsletter model that we're talking about, like even though the model is interesting, if you look at the content that actually is being written, is very uh, first level of content. It's like summarizing stuff, like what really worked was summarizing stuff, or like anything that is in two three sentences. Like I'll give you bite-sized information of what happened in the world and like 10 lines, you'll get to know everything that happened into it. It's like that sort of somebody is good in certain sense. Like when you're, uh, when you're trying to, you know, get fastly adapted to certain things, but it's also bad on a longer term that you don't know anything in depth. Like you don't know one subject in depth. And that's why I like what information does in, in like they have such a, I mean, that even their pricing is not like cheap in any sense. Uh, for one publication that is focusing on tech uh, and their in-depth coverage and sticking to those fundamentals, even though I feel like sometimes they deviate and go for the virality to make sure that they attract new subscribers. Um, thing, because at some point I was like going through these doom scrolling and I feel like there's no one place on the internet right now where you can actually go in depth and read fully without paying. I think we've gotten to that stage where if you're consuming free content on internet, like there's no good free content anymore. It's all fluff and basic, uh, you know, first level content across all categories. Let me say two things real fast on that. First, I do think that if you look at Axios, I agree with you, I agree with you, but it, it in general, I think there's a lot of fluff. And I, I honestly, I'm, I spent my Saturday night this weekend trying to figure out, uh, what the beef was between President Biden and Jeff Bezos on inflation. It's a good example. Like, and I'm sitting there thinking in the back of my mind, okay, on Monday, I need to sit down, Monday or Tuesday this week, I need to sit down and figure out, okay, can I find an economist to do this? And just got hit with a ton of distractions this morning. But, you know, I think there is a lot of surface level stuff. Sites like, and newsletters like Axios, they do a good job of answering the question, the two questions, what it means and why it matters. And I think that's where, even if it's short, it can be meaningful and valuable. And then on the other hand, this takes us on, on somewhat of a tangent, but to me as a journalist, it's an exciting time right now in terms of gathering information. And if you have even a little bit of technical aptitude, you can find sources of information and ways of searching for things and finding things, compiling databases. I worked on a project recently, actually in a little bit of a volunteer project in my hometown where I was able to access well completion reports for the past century and put them into Excel and do a 3D map that showed where the wells were going in my hometown just as an example. And we're able to do that in different ways at GeekWire too with SEC databases and all sorts of full text search that just didn't exist before. And then you combine that with new photojournalism tools like drones and all sorts of AI. I think um, OpenAI has lots of interesting implications for the future of journalism. I don't think you wanna turn the entire process over to an algorithm, but I think there are potentially ways that the AI can get you to a place where you can identify a story in a better way. So I, I, there's all sorts of negative parts of technology in terms of consumption and, and its impact on society, but I, I really am excited at the same time by the potential that it creates for news gathering. Yeah, I feel there are two aspects, like, like any, uh, like you 
any truth in the world is a paradox. Is I, I forgot who said that. Like there's a paradox to all these scenarios. Like it's incredibly useful, but make sure that you're using it in a way that it's useful to you versus you are serving someone else's purpose. Like the classic phrase being, you know, if you don't know who the customer is, you are probably the customer, uh, right? So I think that uh, sort of encapsulates what's going on. And with tech is like, yes, if you are like want to do something, you know exactly what you do want to do that, like hundreds of tools to do stuff. But if you're, if you just want to do scroll all the day, like you can do that too. And it is quite engaging to do that as well. So it's up to like, and it sort of grows like now everything is becoming extreme for that reason. Like um, your consumption is going to get extreme. If you're a fitness person, your fitness is going to go extreme because you have all the tools, like you can be fit, right? So if you are interested and that that's what worries me in a general, like I, I wrote about this like three years back, like there is a push versus pull thing in terms of personalities. Um, if you don't, if you're not a pull person, like not actively going and seeking different topics and trying to explore different topics, you are basically, you know, a push personality. So someone is pushing you an algorithm, someone is pushing your notification, someone is pushing you, uh, you know, what movie to watch, someone is pushing you what song to listen. It's all good in certain sense that you can find the best of the songs, but it's also bad that you're no longer unique. Um, there's a good chance that you are similar to the next person sitting to you in terms of what you like, what you don't like, which is sort of a philosophical way to think about like, is each individual going to be unique or we'll have 10 group personalities. Everyone is going to become that because everyone is pushed same. And it, the algorithm is reinforcing because 10 people like, next 10 people will like, and that sort of continues. It's scary. <laughs> on that scary note um thanks for taking time um i, I think we're almost out of time and yeah. thanks for coming on the show oh it's my pleasure we didn't even talk about podcasting maybe we can talk about that another time <laughs> yeah that was my last topic i mean we can do five more minutes if you're sure I'm, I'm fine if you want to yeah yeah so i i mean i talk i talk about uh your podcasting experience and also like a lot of people start podcasting, but they don't realize how bad this business is. Like, like most media businesses, podcasting as a business is not a great business. Uh, it's only like the top five, maybe two percentile actually isn't converts into a legit business model. Uh, but if you're doing it as an individual business, it's not a great business. Uh, I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, the GeekWire podcast, which we put out once or twice a week, is our main podcast. We've done different ones over the years, health tech. We did one called day two about Amazon for a while that it's a really good case study actually, because we started the GeekWire podcast 10 years ago. It actually predates GeekWire, frankly, more than 10 years ago. Um, and we've just been able to, through consistency and many years of just putting out weekly shows, been able to build up a pretty consistent, reliable audience, starting something new in the podcast realm these days, even for an established site is extremely hard. Um, you've got to really know your growth hacking and 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 it's, it's been a struggle. Um, as a proportion of our business, it's never been huge. For us, it's been more about audience connection. We have some advertising sponsors that hopefully are getting good value out of it and finding value and reaching that really targeted audience. Uh, but um, it's, for us, more of a way of connecting with the people we talk to, much as you get to do, and also a way of establishing a stronger connection with our most loyal 
readers who end up being listeners. And to me, it's for a business like ours more valuable in those ways than it is as a big driver of the top line of the business. Yeah, I think the same. I think the big headlines get highlighted. I think it's similar to, you can almost correlate it to like influencers or creator businesses where everyone thinks they can be a creator, but the problem is like only the top 1% makes all the revenue in the business unless everyone are just trying to get to that top 1% and it can take really long time. Like I think even like when people say, you know, everything is a creator economy next, like we are rebranding media business as creator economy and calling it as, uh, you know, like everyone can become a creator. I feel like there is some sense of reality that people miss because it's all a hit driven business at the end of the day. Like, like a, almost everyone who is interested in business or tech are listening to the five big podcasts, like you know, either it's Kara Swisher's podcast or you know, Jason Calacan's podcast or something like that. And it's really hard, especially in podcasts because the attention spans are required high. You are basically working against the trend of uh, attention spans going low and down. So like it's one of the most toughest places to crack. And if you have to do it as a business, you shouldn't <laughs> is my, and I have a great example for this. It's like, uh, I don't know if you know this company called OnDeck, which started OnDeck podcasting cohort where like they bought in a bunch of people uh, to train as podcasters. Um, and what I've noticed is like almost 80% of the cohort didn't end up actually making or like continuing with the podcasting because it takes an insane amount of work for a long, long time to see any returns. So it's almost like venture, but not that great of an exit. <laughs> without the, it's like venture without the upside. Without the upside, <laughs> without the glamour and um, everything else. Um, but it's easy to create, so everyone get get started. Yeah, it's easy to sit down and have a conversation. It's harder to build a community and yeah. do it consistently too. That's the hard part. I mean, I think that's what people forget. We see a lot of smaller community projects come up and of course we pay attention to what they're doing, but it's like, wow, consistency week after week, year after year, That that's the really important ingredient. I think one last question before we end, like who are the people in media or tech journalism like you admire the most or like sort of try to, you know, adopt from them or learn from them? Yeah, you mentioned Kara Swisher earlier and she's just ending her podcast sway with the New York Times. I really have learned a lot from Kara in terms of just listening, you know, I. I've met her a couple of times, but when I say I've learned from her, from listening to her shows uh, of just her ability to ask a direct, clear, blunt question of somebody in a position of power. And we have our GeekWire Summit every fall and I'll go back and listen to some of her code conference interviews just to, not that I would ever be in her class in that way, but it just, it, it's, it's inspiring. And uh, I, I appreciate the way she approaches that. Um, the team at Bloomberg Business Week, in terms of their ability to identify subjects that matter and find out information that pe other people don't know, um, Spencer Soper and Matt Day and Dina Bass and Brad Stone leads that team, who of course is the author of multiple books about Amazon. And there's of course many other books on the team I'm not acknowledging. I, they, I, I really admire what they do. Um, CNBC, uh, uh, 
Uh, Matt Rosoff is one of the leaders of that team. I've known him forever. He used to be an analyst at Directions on Microsoft. Um, Annie Palmer does a great job covering Amazon for them. Gosh, as soon as we end, I mean, there's going to be a dozen other names, but it's it's there's some really inspiring examples of good tech journalism out there, and um, you kind of know it when you see it and, and appreciate it. One last last question: Like, what do you yeah. think is missing in terms of uh, tech journalism? I've been having a really good back and forth. Um, in fact, I owe him a response to his latest message from a week or so ago from a reader who uh, was not happy and probably actually is not happy um, with what I've been doing over the years and what GeekWire has been doing over the years in terms of uh, he believes, and, and perhaps rightly so, that we and other members of the media are too quick to accept what companies tell us at face value. And his messages have been great and have caused a lot of introspection on my part. And of course, one of the fundamental principles of journalism is skepticism. And the joke in newsrooms used to be, if your mom tells you that she loves you, find a second source. And of course, these things are instilled in us and it's not news that we need to be skeptical. I don't mean to imply that, but, um, the threads I've had back and forth with him have been just a good reminder that we need to go further and further and further in that way. And I would say, especially right now, not just in terms of what tech companies are doing, but in terms of everything happening in the world and the misinformation and disinformation flying around, I think it's just a moment for reporters everywhere to stop and say, what more can we do to be more skeptical and how can we take even further steps to get to the truth? Todd, really appreciate you coming up to the show. It's my pleasure. <laughs>